Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. You'll find all the Twitch shows on your Roku box, Android, and BlackBerry phones at all Yahoo Widget TVs powered by Mediafly. For more information, visit twit.tv slash Mediafly. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 263, recorded August 25th, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 99. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMeeting. Bring people across the country or around the world together with the web conferencing tool that's the best of the best. GoToMeeting. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all those important security issues with Mr. Stephen Gibson. He's here from GRC.com. The man who discovered spyware, coined the term, wrote the first anti-spyware program. He wrote Spinrite, the world's hard drive, best hard drive recovery and maintenance utility. And he is a uh, he is a, a wizard in technology. That's why we ask him to come and explain this all. This is a Q&A segment. Hello, Steve. I do love technology. I loves I, me some computer yep. stuff. Yeah. When I explain myself to people, they say, when they're trying to figure out what the heck are you, I say... I I'm I just love technology. Yeah, I do applied applied science. Yeah, I always you know uh, I always point out that people often say, well, I don't like science, but I love technology, and I always point out that that's the same thing. It's just it's applied. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's you take the science and then you do something with it. Right. That's technology. Right. These iPods don't work on uh, <laughs> on voodoo. <laughs> <laughs> so today, uh, Q&A. It's Q&A week, and we're, uh, need I, dare I mention, we're approaching another benchmark, another milestone. This is Q&A 99, wow. so of course we know what happens in two weeks. Yeah, another Q&A, 100. Yeah. <laughs> going three digits. Our 100th Q&A. Boy, they do go quickly, Leo, 100 of these. Well, before we get to questions, and I have a bunch of them, um, I know you have security news. And, and uh, as always, we begin the show with the latest updates. We got updates and news. Uh, not too much in the way of updates, although Adobe was once again forced to release an out-of-cycle update in order to respond to the new problems that were revealed at the recent Black Hat and DEF CON conferences. Adobe, for some reason, as we've discussed before, believes they will only need to update their products quarterly, despite the fact that everybody else has to update them continually. Um, So far, Adobe has not succeeded at doing that. There's been some rumbling that they were going to switch to a monthly patch system like Windows has um, with, with Microsoft, but nothing so far. So I just want to let people know that they can expect to, if they haven't already, seen Reader and Acrobat updating on all platforms, Windows, Mac, and Unix, um, that they should be at 9.3.34 for Reader, 9.3.4 for Acrobat, 
And if you're still back on the version 8 train, that's 8.2.4 on all the platforms. So once again, uh, you know, Adobe, I don't, I'm not even going to bother with <laughs> all the stuff they fixed. Just update. Um, Chrome also got a big uh, update. Uh, Google's Chrome browser is now at 5.0.375.127. Um, they fixed 10 vulnerabilities, two which were critical, and six were high risk. And what I found was interesting was that Google chose to block public access to its bug tracking database specifically to prevent the flaws from being exploited. So here we're sort of seeing arguably the, the you know, a, a problem with the whole open source model, the, you know, the, the, the we're going to do everything in public view approach because Google themselves are saying, uh, we don't want people to see this because this makes it too easy to exploit these problems. So I thought that was interesting that they had chosen to do that. Um, one causes one one of the two critical flaws causes memory corruption, which of course can potentially be matured into a a remote ex- exploit of some sort. And the other one causes a crash when the browser is shut down. So anyway, those are fixed. Um, and then Apple did a relatively sizable update. When I turned my Mac on, as I do actually generally only weekly, unless I'm playing with iTunes and my iPad stuff, um, I got a 64 megabyte security update. Apple called it uh, the 2010-005 update, which which fixed a number of different things um, uh, in the ATS system. CF Network is their core services uh, foundation networking. There was a they discovered that a default had been set wrong, which I thought was interesting, which was permitting anonymous uh, SSL TLS connections. Hmm. Several people reported that and they they fixed that with this update. Their their Clam AV, which is part of their server line products, had multiple vulnerabilities fixed. The one of about 10 of these that caught my eye, I thought was really interesting in the Lib security package, uh what they said uh, the the impact they high, they um cited was an, an attacker in a privileged network position who can obtain a domain name that differs only in the last characters from the name of a legitimate domain may impersonate hosts in that domain. I thought, huh? And then they go in to describe it in more detail. They said an issue exists in or did after this update, this is fixed. So an issue exists in the handling of certificate host names. For host names containing three or more components, like www.example.com, for example, those those being each of those chunks being a component, in a name containing um, in a name containing three or more components, the last characters are not properly compared. It's like what kind of a screwy bug is that? <laughs> So, and in their example, they say, in the case of a name, for example, containing exactly three components, only the last character is not checked. For example, if an attacker in a privileged network position, whatever that means, they don't really explain that, 
could obtain a certificate for www.example.con, C-O-N, the attacker can impersonate www.example.com, C-O-M. Interesting. This issue is addressed through improve. I love this. Finally, the last sentence. This issue is addressed through improved handling of certificate host names. Uh, it's like, yeah, like properly checking to see if they're the same or not. Right. Anyway, so they fixed that, which is, of course, good news. And that's all we have for that's uh, it? updates. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get to uh, the security news, and I know you have some of that as well. Yep. Uh, let me do a quick go to meeting commercial, and we'll uh, and then we'll move on. And we still have lots of questions too to get to. Um, I just a, a little bit of a, a note. Um, I was using uh, Friend Feed to post uh, show notes as we went, and then I switched over to uh, Buzz Google Buzz. And uh, as some of you know, Google Buzz broke. I broke it actually, uh, August sixth, and uh, nothing that I posted was getting publicly posted, <laughs> including our show notes from last week. So that made me kind of rethink my strategy for posting show notes. By the way, the show notes from last week are now up. But one of the things we were doing, one of the reasons I wanted to use Friend Feeder Buzz, something very public, was so that I could look at the comments as we go and include that along with the chat room. A lot of people are in the chat room at irc.twit.tv when we broadcast live. But it's nice to uh, to give you other means that are a little maybe a little more permanent if you should choose to uh, to comment. So what I'm going to do is put it on my blog from now on. It'll start on my blog, and then uh, that will propagate to Buzz, Friend Feed, and Twitter. <laughs> One hopes in a timely fashion. But comments in any of those spots will be aggregated back to the blog. So in a way, we will still get kind of the best of both worlds, best of all worlds. We'll have a permanent in the show notes record at leoville.com slash blog. And uh, and we'll also put the audio of the show in that. So it'll give you another place to get the show with the show notes. And then it will also propagate to all those other places. And your comments will be re-aggregated back into the permanent record at leoville.com. That seems like it's a good way to do it. I'm dizzy. I know. Do you think you're dizzy? <laughs> <laughs> Social media will make you that way. <laughs> I know. You just got on Twitter. I don't want to push you too far too fast, Steve. But yeah, we'll try, I we'll can try handle that. 160 characters. That's it. <laughs> now, getting on to uh, go to meeting. Go to meeting, of course, as you know, is the way business is getting done these way, these days by bringing people together, sharing ideas, collaborating, not in person, not in the boring old conference call, but online with online collaborative meetings. More and more, the people that you work with are across town, across the country, even around the world. You want to bring those people together in a uh, in a business relationship. So they can help you with the areas of your business that matter the most. We do it all the time. We have lots of business partners, show hosts, and others spread all over. That's why GoToMeeting is so great for Twit, and I think would be great for your business, for collaborating, for project uh, product reviews, for demos, of course, for sales presentations. And let me tell you, you know, when you uh, when you invite somebody to a meeting that's a client, you don't want to make them jump through hoops. GoToMeeting is so easy. You could either send them an invitation ahead of time. It's built in so it works with Outlook or whatever programs you use for email. You just send an email invite. And they click the link when the time comes and they're in the meeting. Or if you're even if you're on the phone with them, you could just say, look, go to gotomeeting.com. Uh, here's the meeting ID. They enter that in. Even if they've never used GoToMeeting before, it's just about 30 seconds from that click to their seeing your desktop on their screen. And I'll tell you, there's, it's really an effective solution. 15 people at once. You could trade control back and forth. VoIP is included. 
So you got free teleconferencing via the phone or via your computer. Go to Meeting from Citrix. These guys know what they're doing. 128-bit SSL, easy to use. Look, try it free for 30 days. What do you got to lose? Go to meeting.com slash security now. Show your clients, your colleagues, your boss. They're going to all agree this is the future of the business meeting. Go to meeting.com slash security now. We really thank Citrix for supporting uh, the Security Now show. They know there's a lot of serious technology users who listen to this show. Uh, security news as opposed to updates. So, yeah. Um, once again, we're with Microsoft and Windows, not surprisingly. Um, a big new problem that's got the security community buzzing because it's not directly Microsoft's problem, although it relates to the way Windows works. Um, Apple knew about this four months ago in March, and one of the fixes they made to iTunes fixed it. The problem is that as many as more than 200 Windows apps are implicated in this problem. So here's the story. Um, we've In the past, there's been various ways of of malware exploiting the order in which windows searches the hard drive for for pieces of applications that are loading for example when a when a certainly probably all windows users have seen these dll files dynamic link libraries um the idea is that many applications or have an executable portion, the so-called, you know, the exe, the exe, and then also may have more code that's not in that exe but are in DLLs. And when the when the application runs, Windows looks to see what other DLLs are necessary. Some applications load the DLLs that they need dynamically. That's the word dynamic link loading. Uh, they load them like explicitly. If they know they're going to need it, then they'll say, hey, I, I, I need the following DLL. Well, Windows has a sequence that it goes through for searching for the DLL that, that an application has asked for when the application uses something called load library, which is the function in Windows that applications use asking Windows to please load this library for them into their application space. Windows looks at the directory from which the application was loaded first. If it's not there, then it looks in the system directory. If not there, it looks in the 16-bit system directory. If not there, in the Windows directory. If not there, in what's called the current working directory, which is sort of like the like the, the current path uh, that you're logged into, for example, if you're using a DOS box. And then if still not found, it looks through the path environment variable, which typically has tons of different directories that are enumerated. So, so what, what malware guys have exploited in the past is the idea that if there was some way for them to get a malicious DLL named the same as a good DLL and somehow get it 
in one of those places upstream in that sequence that Windows uses for searching, then they could get their DLL to load first. Oh, that's a clever man in the middle. Yeah, it is. And and then in order to hide the fact that they had done that, since they would want to, they would want to mask the the fact that they've come in, then they would turn around and load the proper DLL themselves, so that the DLL that was supposed to get loaded got ends up getting loaded, but they get themselves loaded in the meantime. So, so get this: what has been discovered, and a a a a security firm called Akros in uh, it's a Slovenian firm. They disclosed last Thursday that this what they call binary planting. Um, other people call application <laughs> DLL load hijacking. Man. They disclosed that this was um, a flaw in iTunes, which Apple had fixed, but that. Another 40 applications that they had discovered were doing the same thing. What, what, and, and so what happened was our friend H.D. Moore, who does, you know, the Metasploit framework and has been very active in the security field, um, he had apparently run across this himself when recently looking in detail at that recent Windows dot lnk exploit he had been planning on quietly advising a number of companies that their applications things like photoshop and i discovered corel draw and many other very popular programs were also having this flaw so what some applications do is when they load a a specific item like when photoshop loads a .psd a photoshop drawing file for some reason which to me is unfathomable they set the current working directory to the directory where that item is found um just they don't have to but they do all and not all apps do only some do well, it turns out that if if malware were also installed in the same directory as where that asset was being loaded from, and if that malware were a specifically named DLL, which that program, like Photoshop or Corel or whatever, was then going to load in order to process that asset that you've asked it to load, then, of course, for exactly the reasons we've just explained, that, you know, there's this weird DLL searching sequence that Windows go through, this is a way of a bad guy to get their malware to load. Now, the bad news is this works over file shares and WebDAV accesses, which is to say out on the Internet, because unfortunately, WebDAV is this HTTP-based protocol that allows you to to create connections nice. over the internet to very much like file and printer sharing, essentially. And all Windows 
recently has had the WebDAV client present and running by default, which creates a big vulnerability. Now, HD Moore just created in the last day a an auditing tool which anyone can run to check their system for vulnerabilities to this. And so as part of doing my due diligence for reporting this, I ran this thing. Um, I don't recommend <laughs> people do it. No, you do it so we don't have to, Steve. <laughs> it's, just like Jerry yep. uh, has always said. Uh, it, it's horrific. Um, it goes, it, first it pulls every file extension that your system has registered, and then it starts launching exploits against those file extensions, which cause most of the apps in your system to launch. Um, Meanwhile, Process Explorer is running in the background, logging the, the DLLs that each of these processes attempts to find. Um, You then, you then, export the log that Process Explorer generated as a CSV, a comma-separated values file, back to the directory where this auditing tool is running. You run a second JavaScript against it, and it then parses the CSV file produced by Process Explorer in order to create proof-of-concept exploits against everything that it's found, which is how I learned that Corel Draw is one of these things. Well, most troubling is that the two main scripting engines, CScript and WScript, that are, you know, in my system and in everyone's Windows system, are also vulnerable. So it's not just obscure, like, upwards of 200 third-party apps, but even Microsoft's apps are vulnerable, which is known by the industry at this point. Firefox is vulnerable. WinRAR is vulnerable. Wireshark is vulnerable, which is to say that what what this essentially means is that if you you execute a shortcut which refers to an asset out on the Internet, which is a shortcut for any of these upwards of 200 executable applications, which many of us have on our systems. I mean, we all have C script and W script installed. That's, you know, the Windows scripting host executable. Then, and if the if the file goes out to the internet, reaches out to get it, because of the way these specific applications are coded, they set the current working directory to that remote location then they call load library asking windows to load a specific dll and if that dll is and and you know the bad guys unfortunately can easily determine all this just doing the same thing i did because um Moore's auditing tool builds these little dlls for you and leaves them all behind in a big directory structure that it creates so I mean, nothing is unknown. There's no mystery anymore about this problem. So when when a piece of malware is properly named, it will get loaded by Windows and 
part of what happens when a DLL is loaded is there's a standard DLL initialization routine called by Windows in the DLL that gets it running and allows it to initialize itself. That will run, and then your computer is owned. So it runs automatically. Windows yes. does it for you. <laughs> yes. How convenient. Yes. How friendly. <laughs> now, Microsoft has responded. They've, they've, there's a, a knowledge base article, 2264107. So that's support.microsoft.com slash KB slash 2264107. This is one of a number. I mean, Microsoft's scurrying around now. What's interesting is that they have told people they're not going to fix this. They've said something about maybe in a future service pack, but that they're not going to fix this. Now, the problem is they kind of can't because fixing it would mean changing the order in which DLLs are found, which oh. everything is dependent upon. Right. I mean, who knows what would break? I mean, <laughs> it would right. just be a disaster. This is like, this has been the way Windows has always worked. And so this is one of those things that you just can't come along afterwards and say, well, we wish it hadn't always worked this way, but it does. And, and, but, this you know, is kind of a nightmare scenario where you have a it, functionality that's critical and yes. is an exploit. Yes, and so, so what can be done, what Microsoft has done in this knowledge base article, there is a something, a patch that you can download, one for every different version of Windows, um, and change or set some registry keys that this, that this patched, this patch will take advantage of to to specifically block the most dangerous instances, which are shared folders, remotely remote shares, and WebDAV. So that, so that if this becomes a problem, I mean, I, everyone's now expecting that, you know, a week from now, <laughs> on Security Now, we'll be talking uh, yeah, about, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, this having hit, gone into the wild. As far as we know, it hasn't been exploited yet. Um, but it's probably at this point just a matter of days, if not hours, before you know these start getting emailed to people, right. and the bad guys figure out. I'm sure they're working on it right now. So the it's the problem is it's a uh, looking at this patch that Microsoft has offered. It seems like an unclean fix to me. I've looked at unclean, it. Unclean, unclean. <laughs> I can't even recommend what what oh. setting to use that really protects people because I I don't understand really the way Microsoft has designed this. It doesn't look to me like any of the options they provide in this knowledge base article are ones I would want because and I don't understand why. But so I wanted to let everybody know. That we've got this problem. Um, uh, There's nothing Moore's, we can do about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a problem intrinsic to Windows. Oh, really, what Microsoft is saying is everybody else has to fix this. Photoshop, not naturally, of course, Adobe, Photoshop, Corel. Mm. You know, they've got to fix their W script XE and and C script XE. 
executables and WinRAR needs to fix it and Wireshark has to fix it and Firefox, Firefox is apparently vulnerable also. So everybody who's you, who uses the load library function to dynamically request DLLs as a consequence of loading specific assets, like you know, like 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 displaying a Photoshop drawing. Apparently, Photoshop calls for some DLLs that are that in its that, that it doesn't explicitly provide the path name to. They just assume Windows is going to find it for them. Everybody needs to fix their exes. And Can I this just is, say one word? Crap. Yeah. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> That's three words. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not good. Wow. Yeah. Now Microsoft is saying yes. You know, everybody should have already fixed this. That mm. is, they're saying you know only apps which are are not. Loading their DLLs safely are going to be vulnerable to this. And I guess you could say, well, that's why there aren't, you know, <clears throat> hundreds of thousands of apps yeah. that are vulnerable. It's only a few hundred so far Woo-hoo. that have been identified. <laughs> yeah. That's good so, news. <laughs> so that's, uh, you know, that's our big security news for the week. Um, oh, wow. Wow. Uh, it would be good. It would be good if Microsoft gave us a better fix. I've studied what they're offering, and I can't figure out myself what setting I would want. So again, it's it's support.microsoft.com/kb/two-two-six-four-one-zero-seven, and I'm sure I'll have more to say about this next week. Um, and probably with any luck, we'll be talking about applications which are being updated to to fix this i would say um i wish that there was a better auditing tool um what 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 hd moore put together he put together quickly using a couple of batch files which invoked javascript my system wouldn't even do that because i don't have associations to javascript so i had to create a js association change some registry stuff make it all go and then it was really sort of horrific to watch this thing run it took about 45 minutes you know it was like launching everything on my system and yeah i don't recommend it but if people are concerned uh there is that that would give them some sense for for what applications are vulnerable maybe at the corporate it level that's what they should do to see whether their own the own um, programs that they're dependent well, that's, upon. That's a good point. There might even be also in, in-house line of business stuff that they use that's vulnerable. Yes, yes. Wow. I mean, so this could be, you know, this is the kind of thing that, you know, the so-called weaponized email right. or, or spear, spear phishing, phishing. Yeah. would take advantage of. So <clears throat> this is, you know, this is now really in the news and in the security community's crosshairs, which means it's in the bad guy's crosshairs, too. Um, and um, I'm sure we'll be talking about it. Locally, locally. In uh, the ongoing, unfortunately never-ending Google Wi-Fi snooping gate story. (laughs) (laughs) Which uh, we, by the way, we should just point out, have both agreed is kind of uh, a tempest in a teapot. Really is. But now now a privacy group in Spain has sued... Uh, and so a Spanish judge is dragging Google into court to explain themselves. 
Um, the uh, the multiple, I think it was eight class action lawsuits that had been filed have been consolidated into a single one, thank goodness. And they may apparently be joined by five others. And a, 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 um, a some sort of California court has been uh, given the venue for this. So we'll see what happens there. I hope this, again, just, you know. You know, in Britain, no- they've just, uh, they, they examined it and they said, no, there's nothing, nothing here. Move along. Yes, they're, they're leaving their options open. But, uh, and Germany has um, uh, recently received a, a new tool from Google, which was originally going to be available for four weeks, and Google doubled that to eight weeks, which allows people to, to opt out of Street View showing their homes. So using this, you're able to stick a pin in a map somehow right. and say, here's my home. I want it blurred. And then, so before Google takes their Street View service public, in Germany, they're giving people two months' time to identify specific locations which they want blurred out, and Google will make that happen. Hmm. So it's a, a big mess. And many people sent to me through Twitter and, and also in, um, in email the, this note that it has come to the attention of the world that this plane crash, the uh, Span Air's 2008 plane crash, which killed 54 people out of 172 that were on board, was apparently not the fault of malware, but the reporting system, which should have notified authorities in time after three instances on a on this particular plane that the takeoff flaps and slats had failed to extend as they should have that was reported three times malware that was apparently infesting the reporting system it is now believed caused it to fail to report this problem hmm. had it not had the malware not been present, it's believed that it, the, their notification would have been um, logged and noted in time, and this plane would have been grounded pursuant to them figuring out what was going wrong with the flaps. So that was in the news. Apparently, it was a um, a flash drive based problem on a Windows-based system. Now, Ed so, Bott, who I know you know, uh, yeah. uh, he, in his Microsoft report, uh, said, fact check, malware did not bring down a passenger jet. I haven't uh, read the article. So, I, you know, it, it may be there is some question about this. Yes, and yeah. and it's they're looking into it now. Yeah. So uh, many people mentioned it. I just wanted to let people know it uh, that I had seen it and to pass it on. And... There were two, um, uh, this is just my own little grumble, two graphics-related kernel problems recently found in Windows 7. Um, not much is known about them yet. Um, they've just been, res- they've been assigned CVE index numbers, and so perhaps in a week we will know more. I'm grumbling about it because it really does seem wrong to me that graphics related problems are in the kernel 
This is one of the things that Microsoft did that I think was a was a fundamental security mistake was they moved the GDI, the yeah. graphics device interface, from user space into kernel space because the user space to kernel space transitions where you have to cross this boundary of privilege in order to in order to get the kernel to do things for the graphics device interface, they said, oh, this is, you know, many years ago, many generations of Windows ago, they said, oh, let's move that into the kernel to make Windows faster. Well, when you did that, suddenly graphics stuff became kernel stuff, and then graphics programming errors yeah. then become kernel as you know, kernel, you know, privileged kernel errors, which is exactly what we're seeing now. We've been seeing problems like this before. Now they're affecting Windows 7. So it's just, it's like, you know, fundamental architectural policy decision that Microsoft made, which was wrong and is now biting them. And unfortunately, biting all of us Windows users as well. I'm going to have to find this article. I just read an article this week by a security guy who said, really, the fundamental decision where we, we, we went wrong goes farther back than that. Although the same kind of decision when we decided to go with a von Neumann architecture where data and mm. and program uh, were intermingled. Right. And there's certainly advantages to that. For instance, you could run code out of the data space, but that's the Fair. problem also. Right. Get flexibility. Yeah. You know, and, and thinking, just going back to the span air thing, I, I want to be careful. Maybe I said the right thing because I... I didn't say that malware brought the plane down. No, you were right and, about that. Yes, and it's as I understand it, it's that malware may have prevented the a recognition of the problem that right. the plane had. Although Ed, is, here's what Edbot says. You should read read his article on ZDNet. But uh, he says in 2008, two of the mechanics involved in that crash were brought up on manslaughter charges he said what it re the malware was a l symptom of a larger problem in that in that facility where it wasn't just the malware they were just not very they weren't good at what they were doing and they weren't uh ah. and of course if you've got machines that have malware on them that are on the internet and are doing mission critical stuff that is um. certainly a sign of a as, as we've said many times <laughs> uh, yep a, not such a hot setup yeah Exactly. So I don't. I you know. There's more to it. I, if you want to know more, read the Edbot thing. But the facts that you stated were are are the facts as I understand them. Right. And I just have a short little note from a thankful Spinrite customer. <laughs> Spinrite saved my butt. <laughs> I think not literally, but figuratively. <laughs> yeah. I hope. Otherwise, we found a new purpose for Spinrite. <laughs> yes. Uh, he says about two months ago, I bought Spinrite when my hard drive failed. Steve. Spinrite saved my butt. I was writing my end-of-the-year term paper and had to go to class, so I shut my computer off. When I got home from class and turned my computer on, uh -oh. it failed to boot. After nearly having a... He actually wrote hard attack, but and I guess it was a hard disk attack, but yeah. in this, I'm sure he meant a heart attack. I bought Spinrite and let it run all night. When I woke in the morning, Spinrite had finished and the drive was completely repaired and restored. I was able to back up my hard drive and save my term paper. Thanks to you, I turned in my last term paper of the year on time. Yay. Spinrite may be expensive, and I guess for a student, 
He said, but it's worth every penny. You Thank you in advance for your help in this manner. Yay. 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 I like happy endings. <laughs> Yay. We get happy endings with Spinrite. And in this case, it's a different kind of ending. So now, let us get to our Q&A if you are ready. Absolutely. Got some great questions. Steve has compiled these. We should tell people if you want to ask a question of Steve, the best, the, really the only way is to go to securitynow.com. I'm sorry, grc.com. That's Steve's website. grc.com slash feedback. There's a form there. fills it out. Steve reviews those. And while we may highlight a person, individual person for uh, the question, often Steve picks questions that many people ask. So right. we welcome all the questions and, and you know. I guess, Steve, you, you pick the topics based on what people are most interested in this week. Sort of what's happening, things that refer to recent shows. Uh, sometimes they're not questions. We have a, some things that are just comments right. here, which are just like, like useful observations. So Always it's our, our users, our, you know, our listeners' opportunity to be heard, too. Here we go with number one, Nick in New Brunswick, Canada. He's asking about the math behind password strength. You've, we've been doing a lot of math live on the show, <laughs> lately calculating numbers of bits of... Uh, Steve, I love the show and love the way you explain complex issues. I was wondering if you... And actually, I, I, I wasn't going to say anything, but I had the same question. If you could explain the math behind password strength sometime and how bit entropy relates. I've been doing a lot of research discovering more questions that need answering. For instance, when someone says, NIST recommends a 128-bit password, how's that calculated? I understand that bit entropy is calculated by log 2 of a base. Well, he's way ahead of me. Where a base is the number of possible characters. So it's log, if it's 128 characters, it would be log 2 of 128 characters. And by multiplying that result with the number of characters in the password, you achieve a bit entropy length for the password. Well, that, that clears it up. But is it, <laughs> <laughs> but is it the same as stating... My password's X bits long. In other words, is that are, are those equivalent calculations? Okay, so um, if say that we had a an alphabet of just two characters, okay, like uh, one and zero, yeah, then it's very clear that the the number of possible passwords made with that alphabet is two raised to the power of the number of characters in the password oh, okay yeah, that i so, understand yeah 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 so for example if if we had say that we just had a two character password that is two bits and they're bits because the the alphabet is of the, from which we form the password is only 0 and 1 then we know that there's four possible combinations. This is probably like the weakest password ever invented. <laughs> yeah, but easy uh, to understand. Because we got zero, 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 one, one, zero, and one, one. Right. Those are the four possible combinations. So Two to the tooth. Two to the tooth, exactly. Two bits that can have two states. Now, if... In, in a normal password that we've talked about, we've got the good news is an alphabet that is the 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 domain of possible characters from which the password can be formed, many more than just two. So there might be, for example, if we had lowercase, that gives us A through Z, which is 26. If we add uppercase to that, 
and the case is sensitive, that means it matters what case we use, then we get another 26, bringing us to 52. If we add digits, 0 through 9, now we're, we go from 52 to 62, because that adds because there's 10 different digits, 0 through 9. So now we're at 62. If we were to add two more characters, like plus and minus, that brings us to 64. Now, I, I put us at 64 because that's, that's one of our special, easy-to-think-about powers of two numbers. 64 is the number of possible combinations of six binary bits. That is, in the same way that two binary bits gave us four combinations, six, uh, six binary bits gives us 64 combinations. So you could say that a one-character password where it was an alphabet of 64 characters, meaning upper and lower case alphabetic, the 10 digits, and also the plus and minus characters. That's 64 characters. So you could say that that, that password, if it had just one character, had had an entropy of six bits because there's 64 possible passwords and and six binary bits gives us 64. So similarly, if we had two characters in that same alphabet, a 64-character alphabet with two characters... Well, each character, as we've just seen, gives us six bits. So two characters would give us 12 bits of strength, of password strength. Four characters would give us 24 bits, and so forth. So, so that's really, you know, that's the way to think about this. If we had a, if we had characters in our password that were 128 possible characters that is you know all kinds of special characters and and maybe smiley faces and other things it's hard to get up to 128 which is the next power of two so normally we're at some odd point somewhere we're like you know maybe 94 possible characters if we had all kinds of special characters and things and even though it's not as easy to calculate the entropy when you have a an alphabet from which you're making your passwords, which does not have a power of two number of characters, you can use logarithms, which I've done here on the fly in the past, to, to, to create, essentially determine how many bits of equivalent strength a password is. It's easy when you have like six, a, a domain, a, an alphabet of 64 characters, then it's just how many characters times six bits. Or if you had 32 characters in your alphabet, how many characters times five bits and so forth. But you can calculate it for arbitrary um, um, alphabet sizes as well. There and you, so there you there go. You ha- there you have it. You asked and now you know. That ought to be clear. <laughs> That's as mud. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Joshua Backus, Shreveport, Louisiana, believes he got rebound. I believe that our Netgear router at my job, where I am the computer tech, had fallen victim to this new type of rebound attack. A few weeks ago, our computer started randomly redirecting to a few different websites, as well as a Google Analytical site. 
or actually it was google-analytical.com, which is not a Google site, mm-hmm. and would not load the page intended. After reinstalling Windows on two machines, we discovered they began redirecting within a couple of minutes. Ooh. Wow. So now they know it's not the machines. Right. Our final resolution was to reset the router to default, and then the rest of the computers began working fine. Well, that's a good diagnostic. Sounds like it was in the router. And it does sound like a, it, I mean, it sounds like something reconfigured the router, and that's what a DNS rebinding attack does. Right. It may well have something logged into the router and probably changed the router's DNS so that, that these people using this router were going to a foreign DNS server, which was then playing who knows what kind of games. Right. I mean, it's exactly what this sort of thing sounds like. So I just thought it was interesting. I tossed this in here because here was somebody who actually had that experience of rebinding that we were talking about. Right, right, right. There you have it. And I'll mention, <clears throat> it's not yet public, but the, uh, the uh, I'm, I'm like a day away from finishing. I, I declared it finished yesterday and a couple of the testers in our news group reminded me of one more feature that I had promised, which I, which I had forgotten about. Um, the DN- GRC's forthcoming DNS benchmark now also tests for rebinding uh, vulnerabilities. So it will it will show when remote DNS servers are protecting their users from rebinding attacks as OpenDNS has that option to do. So I just added that last week after we did the story on it. Aren't you amazing? How does he do it, friends? Cool. <laughs> It's nice to have a friend in the programming business. Uh, Thorar, oh boy. Yeah. Thorarin Bjornsson. That sounds like a name straight out of uh, The Lord of the Rings. Good job. Thorarin Bjornsson in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, is concerned that Michael McCollum's Wikipedia page is being considered for deletion. What? This this happens from time to time on Wikipedia. In fact... um, we had it happen to us. Uh, there was a discussion of whether to delete Floss Weekly. And, you know, mm. you're not supposed to have a Wikipedia page for anything unless it's important, generally important. And so the discussion of Floss Weekly was, well, is the show important? And, you know, we, I think we pretty much justified it. There are, it it's, it's kind of a form of subtle vandalism to say, well, this isn't important. Hi, Steve. You pointed me toward the Gibraltar series. Two thumbs up. Steve and I both love that. Yeah. I downloaded Gibraltar Stars today, did a wiki search on the author. Michael McCollum, only to find his wiki page is being considered for deletion. I think Michael's page should be kept not only because I think his Gibraltar series is great sci-fi and worth noting, but also because his business model is interesting. Absolutely, he sells only on the website, but sells it in every form possible for e-reading. He sells easily copyable PDFs directly to customers who can choose rightly or wrongly to distribute the digital content immediately and widely. In other words, he doesn't use DRM, right? which means the that the reader gets to choose how he wants to read something. I think his trailblazing methods of selling his wares is of potentially more note than his literature, even. And this alone should justify his existence on Wikipedia. Perhaps you can help summon the Security Now Army to keep his page on Wikipedia. Maybe the more literate among us can contribute to his page. It's, uh, of course, Michael, M-C-C-O-L-L-U-M. And essentially, it's a democracy. Somebody proposes that this should be deleted... Uh, if you if you go to the discussion page, you'll see where this happens. And the trick is to weigh in in a responsible, informed manner. Not flaming. Not a flame war, but say, no, no, this is why I believe 
Oh, I'm going to pull this up here. Oh, I, I believe that this should be um, kept is on worthy Wikipedia. of staying on Wikipedia. Yeah. And they have this. It's it's it. This doesn't mean it's going to be deleted. Somebody, some editor somewhere said, "Who's this guy?" Right. Um, and just look at. There's no question in my mind. But what you should, I liked what this guy uh, just wrote. What Bjarnson just wrote to us. That's the kind of thing that you would put into that um, article's entry on the considering for deletion. Um, it, Although I own the Antares trilogy, some idiot wrote, he's not really notable. Yeah, well, he, I love his stuff. The Antares trilogy is fantastic. Yeah. The Gibraltar series trilogy. All, I mean, he's got some some great books that are standalone. I mean, I love Michael's stuff. And I know that a lot of our listeners have... have been glad that we've referred them to him in the past. So I just wanted to say, hey, if you've got something, as you say, Leo, respectful and and factual, and you've got to give it some, you know, and useful. Um, I'd love to to have our listeners help out keep Michael's page there. I mean, it probably I don't know if it matters at all to him from a from a you know financial standpoint, but you know, I mean, he's a real sci-fi author, and his science fiction is wonderful. You know. Uh there's lots of authors, I'm sure, on Wikipedia who have not sold as well as Michael has sold. Yeah. And it's it's kind of stunning that here we are in Wikipedia where people are saying, well, he doesn't, you know, he's not a signed author. He doesn't have a publisher, so he's not real. Oh. It's just it, the irony is it's dripping Welcome with to irony. the year 2010. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, it's like uh, a rock band. Well, they're not with a label. Well, that's not really how we judge people anymore. And Wikipedia is a perfect example. Wikipedia is not with a publisher either. I hasten to well, note. and he he is being sold on Amazon, and I know that his stuff is selling right. well. Yeah. So, so that would I'm sure anybody you know don't you don't have to go mass trash this discussion page. Just go there if you if you're a fan and and say I'm a fan. And if you really believe, yeah. yeah. Harold Kravatsky in Florida found a notice. I did that name perfectly. <laughs> found a Windows link checker, LNK checker. That's for that LNK problem that works with Windows 2000. Steve, I have Windows 2000 and I wanted protection from the .LNK exploits. Sophos had a program that only worked with XP Vista and Windows 7. I tried it and it wouldn't let me install on Windows 2K. I searched further, found a program from GData that run, runs under Windows 2000. After installing it, I had to restart Windows 2000 to complete the installation. The icons still look normal. So it's a better fix than just kind of turning that off, the rendering oh. off. Below is more from uh, GData. Harold Kravatsky, happy SpinRight customer. And he has a link to gdatasoftware.co.uk. Or you, he says, just Google GData link checker. You'll find it. Many, many of our listeners, I'm, I'm surprised actually how many were as, well, were, were distressed that this was not going to function. That is, the Mi Microsoft, of course, is not reaching, well, not even back past Service Pack 3, not to Service Pack 2, certainly not to Windows 2000, yet there are still people with Windows 2000 systems that are that, that like them, if for no reason other than that, probably that they don't have to be activated by Microsoft. So, you know, they feel a little more liberated and, and free. Um, so I just wanted to point out that there was a fix for this, since this is a widely exploited vulnerability that shows no sign of letting up soon or going away soon. Um, so there is, uh, there is um, some solution for Win2K users. Great news. Moving uh, right along to Toby Wilkins in Wales, the United Kingdom. 
rightly worrying, he says, about, or you says, about contactless payment systems. Oh, you see these everywhere now. McDonald's has them. You just kind of wave your hand. Uh, hello, Steve. I have some information you and Security Now listeners may be interested in regarding a new feature from my bank in the United Kingdom. Wireless credit card payments. Barclays Bank is a very large bank chain in the UK. Yeah, everybody knows Barclays. Yeah. Today I received my new Barclays debit card. I opened the letter to find a small booklet boasting Barclays' new contactless wireless payment feature built into the card. He says, uh-oh, alarm bells. The booklet claims payments of up to 15 pounds. It's about 25 bucks. Can be made from any new contactless enabled debit card by simply holding it close to the newly released relating device. No pin is required. So all you need is a mm. physical card. Holy cow. You know, I see people with these uh, on keychains and things. I call up the information number, free phone, toll-free 800-009-4220. The polite lady confirmed the above stated this feature is being rolled out with all new Barclays cards. I asked her, what is to stop a thief walking around a busy railway station with a reader? <laughs> Just holding it up to people's pants. Her defense was these devices are physically big. <laughs> well, you'd notice, wouldn't you? But admitted she'd never been asked this question before. We know that readers are only going to get smaller. It's probably just an RFID reader, which we know can be made very small. And I'm sure it's only a matter of time before hackers rustle up a nifty little reading device to take advantage of it. When asked, she said she didn't know if the technology used RFID. He says, black hat and DEFCON spring to mind. So only 15 pounds will get stolen. That ups up to a lot of money when taken from hundreds of passers-by in a public location. What happens is the card is pinged or virtually swiped a number of times. Or what about if it's cloned? Signatures and PIN numbers, card fraud and skimming, earns thieves big bucks. Adding a wireless no-PIN feature is only going to make this game much easier for the big guy, the bad guy. In the UK, nearly all credit card and debit card transactions take place by inserting a card into a physical reader and typing your PIN into the device. That's actually not the case in the US for credit cards, but it is for debit cards, right? When I visit the U.S., this does not seem to be the system used. I've never understood why the U.S. has not adopted a system as we have in the U.K. I hope you found this information interesting. Great fan of the show. Reach recently graduated from university with a computer security degree with first-class honors results. Congratulations, Toby. He says, I'm sure listening to security now is the reason for this great result. Well, I'm sure maybe you Okay, so I, I'm just flabbergasted, Leo. Yeah. I, I received new replacement cards from Chase... And they had something called Blink, which was this new feature. And that's what, that's what this was. And so I, I contacted them and I said, I don't want this. And they said, you don't? And I said, no. It's so convenient, Steve. And exactly. And, I, and, I, and they said, well, we'll send you out re replacement cards with no Blink. I said, please. Thank you very much. Well, it's good you can do that. Yes. Um, I mean, but, but Leo... How is this possible? <laughs> Have we learned nothing? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm truly, I mean, the fact that it's limited to $25 or, or in the UK, 15 pounds, to me, that says they understand it's dangerous. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I just, <laughs> yeah. I really, I just, I, I'm just dumbfounded. I mean, you don't have to press a button on the card. You don't have to do anything. There are no buttons on the card. You just bring it close to a reader, and it takes money from you. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life. 
I'm not kidding. I mean, this is just unbelievable. I, I, I'm, you know, it. <laughs> well, you know, we're and 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 it's happening here with uh, cell phones too. The next thing is that they're going to do that with the near field technology. Yeah. I know, and it's I also just, pinless, right? It's like, yes, isn't it convenient? Yes, children, it is. <laughs> it is for everyone. Oh my God, including the bad guys. Oh, I, I guess we're just going to have to learn a lesson. And I, I notice that it's a debit card against which you have. I understand that you have no recourse when funds are extracted, unlike a credit card where you can challenge the, cha- the, 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 the charge and then get it refunded. The debit, it's gone from your account. I'm, I I'm think just... that they have in the U.S. passed additional banking laws with some protection for debit cards. I think the same kind of thing happens now where you, or I think $50 is the maximum you can lose and blah, blah, blah. But this is terrible. Oh, Clearly. it's just, it's Clearly. so brain dead. Yeah. I mean, it's un, it's unconscionable. Yeah. You just, oh, oh, look how convenient. Just wave it in the air. Yeah, the bad guy's going to be, you know, ha- have a gun that like pings your card at a distance. I mean, it's entirely possible. RFID technology, unless you, I mean, you know, there are, for example, there are passports that use this, but they, they, they have them enclosed in a, in a, in a, uh, in an RF, safe wallet or they've got they have leafs on the on the front and back um outer side so that you have to open the passport in order to get internal access to the rfid rfid chip and when it's closed it it protects you and there there are are third parties that, that sell you know rfid shields for for credit cards, but most people are not going to use those. They're going to have them in their wallet, in their back pocket, and it's trivial. I mean, you know, it's it's the reverse of a portable dog killer. You just, you know, you have a gun and you shoot somebody in the butt with this thing and you <laughs> take 25 bucks from them. It's crazy. Okay. Oh. Okay. Well, anyway. We'll I see. Just, I mean, you know, it's interesting. They, they, People, you know, I think the bank is going to lose money too, but I guess they've decided they make more money because of the convenience and they potentially will lose. Well, and the inconvenience then of having us all having to, you know, go through our statements, make look, looking right. sure for, you know, anything that we don't recognize that, you know, that just bled us from, I mean, you know, for, you know, 24, 32, who knows how much money they're going to take because I guess it's up to them. Oh, <laughs> unbelievable. I'll take all uh, 15 pounds. Thank you. Antonio Russo in Swindon, UK, has a thought about our last episode, Strict Transport Security. Stephen Leo, you spoke of one small problem with STS in that if a computer connects to a fraudulent site, say a site trying to imitate PayPal.com, before it is connected to the real PayPal.com to receive the STS token, the user will not be protected. Now, here's one solution. If I were operating an STS site, I would ask for browsers that support STS to come pre-installed with an STS token with a large expiry date for my site. This would not even require browser manufacturers to take the burden of of verifying the validity of the request for a pre-installed STS token simply by insisting that the request is digitally signed for the site, requesting the pre-installation of the STS token. Pre-installed STS tokens could also be added or updated by browser updates. The only theoretical fly in the ointment for pre-installed STS tokens that I can see is that this requires that the provision of browser uh, software and browser updates be secure. This is never going to happen, by the way. However, if browser software is not being provided in a secure manner, 
We have more serious problems than STS systems being compromised, but it would be something to bear in mind with this pre-installed system. What do you think? Kind of like certificates. You you come with preloaded with uh, STS tokens for PayPal and, and banks and things. And Chrome does. What? Really? Yes. Yes. Um, Kudos to is, Google once again. Yep. Um, Chrome is, uh, is really? now... I said it will never happen, and it already did. STS tokens pre-installed, and I wouldn't be surprised... If it ends up being being um, increasingly common in the future, if STS takes off, and it, I mean it already has, um, we're, we're going to see it in Firefox four. I imagine the other browsers are going to follow. Chrome has had it since version four point something or other, and Chrome does preload a a large and growing number of STS. Tokens, yeah, but it's site by site, right? Or is there a certificate authority? Site. Oh, no, it's site by site. So, tokens. So basically, PayPal says to Google, "We want you to just pre-embed an STS token. We're we're hundred percent SSL. We don't want anyone to ever contact us otherwise." And this does solve that first contact problem by having the browser essentially you if you use Google's Chrome. You cannot connect even the first time to, without being secure to PayPal, which wow. is a benefit for, for Chrome. Sure. And um, it just makes sense. Another reason to use Chrome. That is going to be happening in the future. Wow, that's really uh, surprising. I, I mean, I guess you can do it now because um, there aren't a whole lot of sites probably that use STS. What happens if every site starts? Are you, you're not going to put a token for every site in. Yeah, it's a very good question. You know, random ma and pa kettles. Yeah, right. You know, not gonna uh, sites going to be that's uh, that's burdensome. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, Antonio. I should never have doubted you. Thomas Crow, Virginia Beach, Virginia, worries about a self denial of service attack <laughs> on STS. I like that. First of all, I want to say I've been listening, Steve, to uh, security announcements the very very beginning. Well, maybe since episode ten. Quickly caught up. Thank you for the great podcast. After listening to your latest number, 262 STS, a second time, I started to think about enabling this on my own website. But I realized that I could easily shoot myself in the foot if I were ever to decide not to keep up with my site's SSL certificate. They are expensive, too, of course. Mm. Another troubling scenario in general would be, what if a domain name changes ownership at some point? That domain would not be accessible by someone who sells it. Unless they use SSL for the next 40 years or so, or whatever the last STS token was sent to. So, yeah, so if I used STS for twit.tv and then sold it to somebody, they would have to, there would some, have to be some handoff of the certificate, I guess. Well, and you'd be, you'd be obligating them to continue doing it. To continue doing it because all your visitors who'd ever been there and received a 40-year STS right. token, they'd still have that. Well, we could do like a Skype did to ebay we could sell them the site without the token <laughs> it would make some uh, sense somehow to tie this to dns where the ownership of control of the domain is actually implemented oh that's interesting it doesn't make nearly as much sense to put this at the http level where it is now i think the browser should somehow check against the dns expiration date or see if it was renewed as it is now it just seems to be a temporary fix not a real solution to the problem any thoughts Thanks for the show. Enjoy listening every week. Yeah, what about moving it upstream to, to the uh, DNS server? That's already in discussion. Wow. And now the problem is DNS is not secure. Oh. But it is expected that when we get DNS sec, when we have signed 
DNS records, right. then that would provide the security we need in order to be able to add something like an STS record to DNS. And so what that would mean would be that that also solves the first contact problem. Because when your computer looks up the IP for the first time for paypal.com, then then in in getting the IP there would be all it would also look for for example whatever type of dns record they created it wouldn't be an a record that's for addresses it might just be a text record and there would be some text entry the point is it would not be spoofable that's what we have to guard against is is this being spoofed for for exactly this kind of denial of service reason so by having signed dns records then we not only are we able to rely on the IP address that we got that courtesy of DNS security, but we can rely on all the information, which is then being published through the DNS system in general. And an STS is a perfect candidate for that, which would mean that you you'd it would you the browser would receive this STS token at the same time that it got PayPal's IP and say, oh. Um, I'm authorized to use SSL, and I'm never going to do otherwise. Hmm. So it's a it's a actually uh, very prescient uh, in this case on Thomas's part. We have such smart listeners. We do. We've got great listeners. <laughs> They've thought of two improvements to STS that w- that are already uh, coming along. And I'll say one thing also in the spec. There's been the suggestion that relative to the expiration of the SSL certificate that maybe the expiration of the strict transport security token match the expiration of SSL so that that is of a given certificate that the site is currently protected by so that instead of I mean you'd really want 40 years if you're committed to as PayPal is to always having secure connections but if you're not if you might, you're not sure you're going to renew your certificate, then you're certainly better than than nothing to set your strict transport security um, header to the same number of seconds in the future as when your existing SSL secure, security certificate expires, so that they die together if um, if you choose not to renew. Uh, Let's see. Let's go on to uh, question eight here. Matt Bender in Madison, Wisconsin. He's wondering about adoption delay. Steve, he says, every now and then while listening to Security Now, you make a usually proud reference to the fact that you're still on XP. And not too long ago, we know you were still using Windows 2000. So like you, I'm cautious about adopting new technology the minute it comes out so I can get the bugs worked out. Look behind him. Steve's still using PDP-8s. <laughs> Not for anything serious. For example, I would never buy a new model line car of the uh, model. I would never buy a new model line of car the first year it comes out. That makes sense. From what I can remember, your uh, reasoning in not adopting the latest technology or operating system is just that very reason. It's too new. Bugs need to be ironed out, as well as possible security implications. But based on your reasoning... If you're still using XP, why have you adopted the iPad? <laughs> it's a new technology running a relatively infant OS that has some proven security flaws. I'm not bashing the iPad or any technology for that matter. In fact, I really like it, although I don't have one. 
I'm just wondering what your thought process is on adopting new technology, both for you personally and for use at GRC. Take care. Keep providing quality work, Matt Bender. Well, Matt's right, certainly, about my feeling for something like my main workstation PC where the crown jewels reside and where I spend all my time and I've got all the stuff going on. Um, I'm very cautious. But, you know, I bought, I pre-ordered the Kindle also, which is a computer running Linux. And I'm not worried about it. And, sim- and, and very much in the same way, the iPad. For me, those are appliance devices. And it's a little island sort of all unto itself. And it can't, you know, if there's a problem there, it's pretty much contained there. It's not able to escape from the iPad and, you know, do any great damage to to the rest of my computing infrastructure and ecosystem, unlike something nasty getting into my Windows machine, which is hooked into my LAN and, um, and does have access. So I guess, so, you know, the... The reason I feel differently about the iPad is just that it's it's security constrained by nature of the way I use it, how it connects to the rest of my world. And, you know, it lives down in my car most of the time. And, and I take it with me when I'm when I'm running around out of the house. So it's sort of safe. Yeah, it's it's because of its limited use. You wouldn't use it as a general purpose computer, perhaps. And I would also add what John C. Dvorak always says when confronted with this kind of thing. Foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. <laughs> In other words, hey, you know. you Adapt. 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 Stephen Florida worries that STS will block the administration of his router because the Linksys cert doesn't match. Great show on STS. I've been using it in NoScript for a long time, but whenever I log onto my router's administration page, I get a certificate mismatch error. Essentially, it says you're trying to connect to 192.168.1.1, the router's you know gateway's address. However, the name on this certificate is Linksys. I click past it, but from what you said, I wouldn't be able to do that when STS is fully implemented. That happens to me in a lot of other situations as well. Uh, you know, a, so it's true. There are some situations where the certificate doesn't match. But that, but you expect that. I've configured the router's admin page to accept secure connections only to help prevent my wireless network being used by a bad guy to mess with the router. Oh, that's why he's getting that warning. Mm-hmm. Seems I have to disable that, allowing insecure connections to the router, else uh, I'd never get past the certificate mismatch. Of course, the default password's been changed, but I still hate to change the security settings on the router admin. Any thoughts? It's, it is. It's kind of, you know, uh, you gained a little bit, but now you're losing a little. Well, and that's funny because as I was thinking through this, I thought, okay, and what has he gained exactly? Wow, that's um, a good point. He's trying if he, if he's clicking past a certificate mismatch error, and he's only using secure connections to his router to somehow thwart a bad guy. Well, then the bad guy can do the same thing. So the only thing he'd be doing by using a, an SSL connection to his router would be preventing a bad guy from eavesdropping on his conversation with the router because that much... Oh, that's encrypted now, yeah. ...would be over SSL. But a bad guy could still connect to the router. So I guess, okay, he has protected his password. So if he uses SSL, 
Then he's established a secure tunnel to the router. Then he uses that to log on. So it's true that passively sniffing his network, if his network were not also encrypted, and I would imagine Stephen Florida's network is encrypted if he'd gone through all this otherwise. Um, But then if there was a bad guy who could crack his encryption and... He certainly could not get into the SSL connection, and that would prevent the bad guy from seeing him log on to his router, obtain his law his router's log on credentials, and then be able to get in and do the same thing himself. So, yeah, I guess I can see that Steve has has achieved something by doing this. The and and, and my first thought in reading this note was, well, okay, you can't have everything. I mean, if you want to allow a certificate mismatch. You absolutely cannot use STS because it won't allow that. So you have to tolerate certificate mismatch in order to get SSL um, or somehow I, I, okay. One thing you could do is what's happening is he's logging in by using the IP address of the gateway, but apparently He's saying that the the certificate name is Linksys something or other, which means that the router does have probably a self-signed certificate, or maybe it's a a certificate authority signed certificate, which would be very cool. But what that means is he needs to put an entry in his host's file for the name of the certificate on his Linksys router, which we which he can view. When he gets this mismatch error, he puts that in his host's file and has that mapped to the gateway IP 192.168.1.1. Now, after doing that, he can log on to his router using its proper name rather than the IP, which will then cause the certificates to match and he'll get no more SSL error. Clever. So so good. Best of both worlds. Solve the problem. Our final question, Steve. Shall I break out the Vuvuzela? No. Maybe <laughs> not. No. <laughs> we, we have Steve and Marie Kimbrough in the studio, and Steve's vigorously shaking his head. No. He's sitting right across from me. He'd get the full blast. Our last question. David John Drew in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, came up with an STS-based denial-of-service scenario. Here you go, Steve. Great discussion on strict transport security. I was very excited to hear about this new security feature, although I have a thought of a scenario that could allow STS to be incorrectly enabled for non-HTTPS sites using a man-in-the-middle attack. Here we go. A Starbucks Wi-Fi hacker sets up a man-in-the-middle attack for a user connecting to the Starbucks open access point. The user now attempts to connect to a site that does not have HTTPS support. You know, some random leoville.com. The hacker intercepts the HTTP request, because it's not encrypted, returning a page that redirects the user's browser to the same site, HTTPS colon slash slash. The user's browser then attempts to connect to the HTTPS URL, which is again intercepted. That's key, because otherwise you'll get a warning, right? Yep, which is again intercepted by the man-in-the-middle attack, likely using on-the-fly self-signed certificates. The hacker now sends back an HTTPS page with the STS header, 
thus enforcing and requiring the use of HTTPS connections. So he's turning on STS. Right. The user clicks through the certificate warning. Ah, uh, see? Uh-huh. So you've got to click through that certificate warning. Yep. And the browser reads the STS header, adding the site to its list of STS-enabled sites. The user is now, longer able to, now no longer able to connect to the original non-secure leoville.com from any internet connection because their browser says, no, 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 we got an STS token here. You need to use HTTPS. And because my, my server or the, the non-encrypted server doesn't support it, they can't get on. Now, granted, the application for this is strictly a denial-of-service attack on the individual user. Because once STS is enabled, the browser would then be forced to require proper certificate authentication for the intercepted site. My two questions are, one, are the STS headers able to be initially sent when the site is using a self-signed certificate? And two, where has my logic failed me? Thanks for the uh, podcast. Congratulations on five years. And the answer is good news. The people who designed the spec were absolutely clear that... No STS header will be accepted if there is any deviation uh, from a perfect SSL connection, specifically self-signed certificates and, or expired certificates or domain name mismatch certificates. Nothing, no error at all will be allowed. So, so... In this scenario, the glitch is, the thing that prevents malicious STS um, headers from being accepted and STS tokens from being embedded on people's browsers like, exactly like this. And for this reason is that, that unless you, you have a legitimate certificate that is completely correct, such that no warnings of any sort come up, only then... Will the browser say, okay, I'm, I believe the headers that I have received over this SSL connection for this purpose because I got, you know, an absolutely legitimate um, uh, certificate connection, uh, certificate for the, the server from the server at the other end. And so the, one, one of the key things that that strict transport security enforces is it completely removes from the user the, any ability to short-circuit the process, which is where a lot of its value comes from because users do just click through these things. And so this is meant to say, uh-uh, we're, we're PayPal or whomever. We're serious about security. We'll take responsibility for providing you know, the certificate at our end, and we want the other end, the client end, to do as good a job as we are of enforcing and holding up their end of the bargain. So that's what we get with this, which is why it ends up being so good. That's great. Yeah. That's good news, yeah. Well, Steve, a great 10 questions, a great, of course, 10 answers, as always, for Q&A 99, episode 263. Next week, do you know yet what you're going to talk about, or is it a mystery? I think it's, a, it's an issue that's been around for a while, which is... Which again, many of our listeners already know about. Um, have have sent me, hey Steve, have you seen this sorts of notes a while ago? It's a it's a sort of an an investigative technology that the EFF has put together for tracking users without cookies. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's not good. Just it's a way of it's an interesting exploration for how 
how our systems identify themselves even without cookies. And it turns out it's uh, it's too easy to do. Yeah, I saw this article, and I'm glad you're going to address it, yeah. Yep. So perhaps, tentatively, that's what's next week, unless something unless horrible some happens. Horrible cataclysm. <laughs> unless, unless a fire breaks out. Although I imagine we'll cover that at the top of the show in any event. You always get the news. And again, uh, I am now posting show notes. Steve does copious show notes, which he puts on his site at grc.com, along with 16 kilobit and full 64 kilobit audio uh, transcripts. I mean, that really is the place to go is grc.com. However, I am also putting that on my blog because I've always put out a, a post on Buzz and Twitter and soon to be on the uh, Twit Facebook page as well that a show has begun and here's the notes. Um, but but the problem is that, that that's kind of ephemeral because it just scrolls on by. So I'm going to put it on the blog where you can get it uh, so people can subscribe to my blog also, uh, either RNS, RSS or email, so you'll get those f- great show notes that Steve provides um, automatically. Uh, or you could just watch for it on Twitter and uh, Buzz and you'll get a link back to the uh, the blog post. And, and so uh, that's another place you'll get the notes now. Are, are we going to be calling this the Henry's doing his homework blog? Yes, you heard yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened? You know, I just I really got kind of an epiphany when I realized that you you know all this stuff that you put on on Twitter and and Buzz and Facebook just kind of scrolls away and forever. And uh, there's stuff like that, like the show we just did. I want to keep that uh, permanently. So I'm a, that's what the blog should have been for all along. So I'm going to use the 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 right platform for the right stuff. So that's where those notes will begin. But I'm still going to pump it out to Twitter and uh, and Buzz and all the other places. In fact, um I'm using a commenting system that's also supposed to pull comments back. It doesn't seem to be getting them from Buzz right now. I'll have to figure that out. But um wow. It does get them from Twitter. I notice we're getting some Twitter comments back there. So we'll figure that out. Connectivity. Connectivity. Yeah. yeah. The idea is and this has always been the idea of the podcast too. Any way you want it. Everywhere you want it, in any form you like. You can't get away from it. You can't escape. <laughs> no, I just it. want to give people what they want. I don't, the, you know, the unlike Twitter army. The Twitter army is after you. Yeah, they're before me. Thank you, Steve. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We do it live every Wednesday, two p.m. Eastern, eleven a.m. Pacific, eighteen hundred UTC, on the Twit stream, live.twit.tv. The chat room is always active. Whenever Steve's on the air, 600 people in there right now, so you can always join that conversation, irc.twit.tv, and, uh, of course, the show notes. And let's not forget SpinRite, the world's finest hard drive and recovery and maintenance utility at grc.com. See you next time, Steve. Thanks, Leo. Security now.